Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Today we are talking about mindfulness. And when I say mindfulness, I mean when our brains are wrapped fully engaged in the present moment. And our first guest today is David Gellis. He is a reporter for the New York Times covering mergers and acquisitions, corporate governance, and Wall Street. You can find his most recent work on Deal Book. Before joining the Times in September of 2013, he spent five years with the Financial Times. At the FT, he covered tech, media, and M&A in San Francisco and New York. In 2011, he conducted an exclusive jailhouse interview with Bernie Madoff, shedding new light on the $65 billion Ponzi scheme. David has written a book about mindfulness at work, bringing together his 15 years of meditation practice with his work as a business journalist. Mindful Work is being published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2015 and explores the growing influence of Eastern wisdom on Western business. Good morning, David. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. A pleasure. You are talking about something and writing about something that is near and dear to my heart as a long-term meditator and practitioner and teacher of mindfulness in my own practice. I know the value of it. I see the value of it. I feel the value of it. Tell us how you got there. Well, it was more than 15 years ago now. I was back home from college, my first semester at Boston University, 
And mind you, I had been a confused college student, a confused teenager before that. I'd always been looking for answers to life's big questions, but never really finding them. And then back home from college, I opened up this slim volume on my parents' bookshelf, and it was an introduction to Buddhism. I had never explored Buddhist thought, but all of a sudden, the words off the page jumped out at me. And this promise that you could get off the hamster wheel of my mind, that I could stop obsessing about the future and dwelling on the past, and that there was this very simple technique called mindfulness meditation that could help me get there, was immediately intriguing, appealing. And so I did the first thing I could. I opened up the Yellow Pages and found myself the nearest meditation center, which was Green Gulch uh, Zen Center in Northern California, and I started meditating. And a year after that, I was in India, and the rest is history. (laughs) Bitten. Sounds like you were bitten. Bitten and smitten. I was indeed. And it's really been a lifelong journey ever since. And my practice has ebbed and flowed. It's not uh, that I'm a monk. I don't sit on a cushion for hours at a time every day. Instead, it's become just part of the fabric of my life. And there are perhaps times when I go in more intensive meditation retreats. And then there are times when I don't have the structure in my daily life to have a real formal meditation practice. That's especially true now that I have a 10-month-old little daughter. But Over the years, mindfulness has just become something that's important and also easy to do many times throughout the day in even short but meaningful ways. And that's really what I saw as I went out across the workplace, is that people from the boardroom to the factory floor are on a similar journey, and they're finding that mindfulness, even in small doses, can make a big difference in their lives. Let's talk about how this relates to the workplace, because you bring up something that I think could be quite fascinating. I'm, I'm thinking of a production line worker, for example, who is doing repetitive tasks day in and day out and how they might be able to find this practice in their workday. A great company to cite in an example like this is called Green Mountain Coffee. They make those K-cup coffee pods that you might find in your office cafeteria. They, over the years, realized that while mindfulness was helping their executives, maybe even their middle managers, it's something that was introduced by their CEO some years ago, they also employ thousands of factory workers. And these are the people, perhaps, that need it just as much, if not more, than the white-collar workers. So they developed this mindful stretching program. And for 10 minutes before the factory workers, who are 12-hour shifts, packing boxes, driving trucks, before they start their shift, they just do 10 minutes of gentle, quiet stretching, trying to both loosen up their limbs, center their attention, and calm themselves down before what is bound to be an intense workday. And what do they find? Well, after a year more of this, workplace injuries in the factories that Green Mountain runs, they came down. And workers, they profess to be more satisfied, more fulfilled at work. So even for these people who, you know, are perhaps some of the least likely meditators, mindfulness in this very secular, very accessible form can make a big difference. I I agree with you, and I bet if you were to dig a little bit deeper in the studies, you probably would find an improvement in overall health, perhaps less heart disease, um, lower blood pressure. I mean, these are some of the known um, positive benefits of having a mindfulness practice. Absolutely. And what's so amazing is that we're still at the very early days. I mean, a lot of great work has already been done, 
But the research into how mindfulness is changing workers, be they white-collar workers or blue-collar workers, is still very nascent. And that's what I'm so excited by, is as the research starts to catch up with experience, the momentum is just growing. I cite a company called Aetna, the big health insurer up in Connecticut. They rolled out a mindfulness and yoga program to thousands of their employees around the country after some initial pilot studies proved promising. And over that first full year, well, guess what? Healthcare costs at the whole company started to come down. Now, is that all directly attributable to meditation? That might be a bit of a stretch, but I asked the CEO and he said, I got to believe it helped. If our workers were less stressed, if they were more focused, if they were going to the infirmary less often, if they were having fewer health care issues as a result of a more calm demeanor, that's going to add up. And that's actually going to touch the bottom line at the end of the day. And that's what these companies are interested in is the bottom line. And if you create a healthier, happier workforce, they are more productive, and the bottom line is enhanced. So there, there, there is no downside. You know, the only downside might be that it's not that the um, solution is not coming out of a pill bottle, which I think is truly the upside. Absolutely, and this gets to an interesting kind of uh, existential tension about why is it why is it that we're doing mindfulness and meditation? Mindfulness and meditation it can be a very personal journey. And of course, if you ask the, 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 the long-time proponents of mindfulness, they'd say, well, the aim shouldn't be a bottom line. The aim should be, as you say, sustainable happiness. And so as mindfulness emerges in the workplace, we're seeing some of these interesting pushes and pulls. If you ask the CEO, why is he introducing mindfulness to the employees? Is it so they are truly happier people or is it so the company fares better? I don't know that there's one right answer to that question, but the tension there is one of the things that makes the story so compelling to me. Well, you talk about mindfulness as a secular pursuit, and I think that's a really important fact that we should really expound upon because you don't have to be religious to practice mindfulness or meditation. I talk about mindfulness as a universal human quality. It's something we all possess. And it's just a matter of remembering and finding our way to the state of mindfulness. Now, the irony, some of the confusion may come up from the fact that the Buddhist tradition historically has emphasized mindfulness. The term mindfulness is even kind of sprinkled across the Buddhist teachings, like stars across the night. It's all over the place. And Buddhist meditation, much of it, is actually geared towards cultivating mindfulness. But they don't lay claim to that state. They don't say that this state is what the religion is all about. Far from it. They say it's something we all possess. And here's a little roadmap that can help you get there. Now, what's happened over the last 40 years is that in the U.S. specifically, this whole movement has come up and really found ways to secularize mindfulness, to divorce the practice from all of the religious trappings, and make it totally accessible to anyone in any field. John Kabat-Zinn, a molecular biologist from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, he's the guy that led the charge. He developed mindfulness-based stress reduction, and he made it as absolutely accessible as it possibly could be. And guess what? It's taken off, and it's taught in thousands and thousands of hospitals and clinics around the country. So, yeah, over the years, maybe historically associated with Buddhism, today, as secular as it gets. 
But I think it's important to share experientially what happens to us when we practice mindfulness or when we meditate, that typically we become more compassionate, more empathic, a little bit softer in our approach in the world. And perhaps for the spiritually curious, it does um, uh, catalyze uh, one to embark on a path of of research, of, uh, of discovery. And that's one of the beautiful things about this practice is it meets you wherever you are. If this is someone who just needs a little stress reduction and to take themselves and everything going on around them just a bit less seriously, mindfulness is a great tool for achieving that. But it can also stoke a much deeper curiosity that can lead to much longer journeys. And there are critics, there are mindfulness purists who say it's inappropriate for mindfulness to be showing up in the workplace because it denatures a very rich tradition. And to those kind of criticisms, I say, but what if it opens the door? What if it's just that first step on a journey for those who are actually prepared for a much longer and richer spiritual path? Well, everyone's got to start somewhere. And so mindfulness can be a very simple remedy, almost a remedial thing to help us deal with these very crazy lives that we all live. Or perhaps for some, it's the first step on a much longer path. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we are going to carry on the conversation with author David Gellis. The book is Mindful Work, and to learn more, you can go to davidgellis.com, on Facebook, Mindful Work, the book, and Mindful Work, and on Twitter, at D. Gellis. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. Love is in the air. Love is in the air. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Love is in the air, in the whisper of the tree. Love is in the air, in the thunder of the sea. 
welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it because sharing is caring. And we are talking about how to make your days brighter, more joyful, more experientially satisfying through mindfulness. And we're talking specifically about mindfulness in the workplace with David Gellis. He is the author of a new book called Mindful Work. And he's exploring what's happening in the workplaces out there because big changes are occurring. David, talk to us about the shift um, in companies to teach and um, support mindfulness in the workplace. It's just early days here. I want to emphasize that. And not all companies are doing it exactly alike. But I think the diversity of approaches speaks to the fact that there are so many different companies and that necessitates all sorts of different approaches. So I mentioned earlier, there's this company, Green Mountain Coffee, that's uh, offering very simple, mindful stretching routines to its employees. At the other end of the spectrum is a company like Google, which has this very rigorous course called Search Inside Yourself, which has homework and lots of data about uh, neuroscience and emotional intelligence, and it's geared for these very highly intellectual Google workers. And those are the two ends of the spectrum, and there's everything in between. Aetna, another company I mentioned, they're doing kind of something where it's a bit of yoga, a bit of mindfulness, a bit of emotional intelligence training, and it's open to everyone. So again, the different kinds of companies that are out there, and there no two workplaces are the same, necessitate a really wide range of different approaches to bring what is, you know, ultimately a very intense and sometimes sensitive curriculum, mindfulness, you know, we're actually asking ourselves to be introspective here, to a much broader audience. But it's happening, and that's what's so exciting about it uh, right now, and so I wanted to write this book, ultimately. Well, and there are other companies, there are other very large mainstream companies that, such as General Mills and Target, who are employing these kinds of programs as, as a benefit and seeing good results. Now, who, you, one would not think of either of these companies as uh, trailblazing, but they are. General Mills has done some of the best work out there. This woman named Janice Martirano, who herself has written a book called, I believe, Finding the Space to Lead. Uh, she was the deputy general counsel there. She uh, had a kind of, she hit rock bottom. She had worked herself into the ground. She had some personal difficulty on top of just working incredible hours, and she was depleted. She then found mindfulness and came back a few weeks later to work with a new spring in her step. Others at the organization said, what's changed with you, Janice? She said, well, I've started meditating. If you're interested, let me know. That snowballed over a few years, and now General Mills runs this mindful leadership program, and hundreds of employees around the country have done it. And at the General Mills campus in Minneapolis, Minnesota, there's a meditation room in every building on corporate campus. So that's, you know, they've really taken it to the extreme. They've really embraced it. Not every company is going to move so far so fast, but it's heartening that companies you wouldn't think are naturals for this kind of stuff are taking it very seriously. Wow, that, that, is, that is amazing. Let's talk about what happens to our brains because there, there actually are chemical and physiological changes that happen in the brain when we enter this mindful state. 
for a long time, much of even the second half of the 20th century, the conventional wisdom in neuroscience was that our brains essentially evolved, they matured by early adulthood, and then they slowly degraded as we aged. In recent decades, it's been proven that this just isn't the case. Even into very old age, our brain continues to respond to stimulus. So just as a experienced violinist playing well into their you know, later decades will continue to grow, continue to get better, their brains will exhibit more gray matter that is more essential brain muscle in the areas of the brain associated with, say, uh, fine motor functioning. The same is true for meditators. So in the areas of the brain that are activated when we meditate, and we now know that that's an area like the prefrontal cortex, evolutionary, this is the newest part of the brain, the part of our brains associated with our reason, our higher order functioning. As we meditate, this is the part of the brain that's activated, and it actually gets stronger. It becomes more robust. And think of something like concentration, our ability to stay on task, that actually becomes easier to achieve. So just as going to the gym, we lift muscles with our arms, going to the meditation essentially is exercise for our brain. And that simple act of bringing our attention back to the breath, which is a basic principle in mindfulness meditation, coming back to the breath over and over and over, that's essentially a rep for our brain, and it makes our attention that much stronger. And I think it's important to share that when we're speaking of mindfulness exercises or the process or, or, or meditation itself, that we are not talking about eradicating thought or emotion in the brain as it happens. It's about allowing what is present to be there and kind of wash over us, you know, not sticking to it, that we come back to the breath as a way to sort of cleanse out what's, what's moving through. John Kabat-Zinn describes mindfulness as paying attention in the present moment on purpose, in a particular way, and non-judgmentally. Nowhere in there does he talk about freeing the mind from thought. It's our mind's nature to think and to wander. Mm -hmm. All mindfulness asks is that when that happens, we notice it. We notice what it is we're thinking about. We don't react to it. So we don't decide, oh, we like it. I'm going to continue with that thought or, oh, that's a terrible thought. I have aversion to it. I want to think about something else. All it asks is that we notice it and gently accept it and gently return our attention back to the breath. That simple practice is totally potent over the long term. It allows us to be more empathic. It allows us to be more focused. And ultimately, it makes a lot of the things that we tend to take so seriously, just a bit lighter, a bit easier to, you know, let it roll off our back. So it's not that we're empty in our mind of thoughts. I don't know anyone who's been able to totally do that. Uh, instead, it's about gently accepting what's happening instead of driving ourselves crazy, wishing that things were other than they are. Uh, uh, agreed. It, it is it is very difficult to be devoid of uh, uh, of thought, but I think what mindfulness does teach us to do is be a better observer of life. And that is so invaluable. It's invaluable at home. It's invaluable at the workplace. It's valuable in our relationships. Here at the New York Times, you know, there's all sorts of opportunities for me to drive myself crazy if I wanted to. Uh, 
but mindfulness allows me to you know, try to essentially prioritize what's worth getting worked up about. And oftentimes, the things, that initial stimulus, it'd be so easy for me to re- react, uh, to say, oh my gosh, I need to you know, quickly do this or that, to appease someone or to hit back at someone or to try to cover my ass in some way. Instead, just interjecting a bit of mindfulness after that brief stimulus allows me to go from reaction to response. And a response can be much more gentle and can have better outcomes for myself and for those around me. Let's talk about um, it's never too late, right? People would say, oh, you know what? You know, I'm too old to start meditating. You can't teach a dog new tricks. And I think what is so exciting and compelling about the state of neuroscience is it's being disproven that you can teach an old dog new tricks. You're never too old to start meditating. And you can have shifts in both emotion and brain functioning no matter when you start. Not only that, which is all true, but in fact, a very little bit of mindfulness can go a very long way. So the studies show that, yeah, it works well into later years of life. But not only that, as little as a few minutes of mindfulness can start to change the way the brain works. Now, is it going to make everything perfect overnight? Absolutely not. Mindfulness is no panacea. But it does show that even little bits, a very minimal effort, can yield very big results well into our later years. Let's chat for a moment about mindful executives, the leaders of these large companies, and what happens to them when they are exposed to and begin practicing? The range is as diverse as the companies where this is starting to show up. And I think that, again, is one of the things that's so compelling to me, is mindfulness doesn't reveal itself in a uniform way. For some people, it's going to make them more socially responsible. I think of a woman like Eileen Fisher, who runs her own clothing company, she began practicing mindfulness after kind of a a more conventional career, you know, later into her career, once the company is already well established. And after a while, she realized one of the things she needed to do, motivated in part by this renewed sense of interconnectedness, this renewed sense of empathy and compassion, was actually make life uh, markedly better for her Chinese employees, for the women working the factory floors in China, making Iron Fisher clothing. And so she did, went about and did exactly that. Now for uh, well, you know, you, executive, I just want to go ahead. I just want to jump in here no, for please. one second about an observation about Eileen Fisher because I I enjoy fashion. That you know, if you go back in history, let's say twenty years ago, the kind of clothing that Eileen Fisher was making was a little bit more constricted, and I would say leaning towards professional. And if you look at mm. the line now and how it's rebranded itself, it's very much about being comfortable in one's own skin and mm. um, exhibiting one's own creativity. And I think that's fascinating because I didn't know that about her. Yeah, well, you'd have to ask her about how her mindfulness practice perhaps has changed the, the fashion itself. But in my discussions with her, it became very clear that it's definitely changed the way she does business. And that's what's so interesting to me. 
Well, we are about out of time, and I, I could go on all day speaking with you about this because I find the um, your exploration of mindfulness as it relates to the workplace and the business world very, very exciting, so you'll just have to come back and share more. To learn more about mindful work, please visit davidgellis.com, on Facebook, Mindful Work the Book, and Mindful Work, and on Twitter at D. Gellis, thank you so much for being with us, David. Thank you for sharing um, your research, your own experience, and I'm sure you can find a very mindful state with that little 10-month-old nestled in your arms as well. Well, thank you so much. I had a great time. Happy to come back. Me too. Thank you. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about mindfulness. And for many of you, this is a word that might be overused. But really what we're talking about is the ability to quiet our brains, quiet our bodies, have better focus in our lives, be more relaxed, be more engaged and connected with those around us. And that really um, sums up the benefits of mindfulness. But we're going to talk about mindfulness now from a clinical perspective. What actually happens in our brains and our bodies when we go there? And where is there that we are going? In the studio with me is Dr. Sarah W. Lazar. She is an associate researcher in the psychiatry department at Mass General Hospital. That's Massachusetts General Hospital, for those of you who don't know as well as an assistant professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School. The focus of her research is to elucidate the neural mechanisms underlying the benefits of yoga and meditation, both in clinical settings and in healthy individuals. She is a contributing author to Meditation and Psychotherapy, published by Guilford Press. She has been practicing yoga and mindfulness meditation since 1994, and her research has been covered by numerous news outlets, including the New York Times, USA Today, CNN, and WebND. And her work has actually been featured in a display at the Boston Museum of Science, and we're going to need to ask her about that. Good morning, Sarah, and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, it's a pleasure. And you are actually coming to us uh, from a snowed-in day in Boston. So thank you Indeed. for being here in spite of the weather. I'm imagining myself being there in Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> well, today it's supposed to be 80, so I will give you an honorary nod as I drive down the coast to my office um, uh, speeding. I will, I will nod to Boston and you and, and be grateful for the sunshine here. Let's talk about the beneficial effects of meditation. This is something that we profile a lot on this show, and I can't emphasize it enough how it's impacted my own life, um, the lives of those clients that I work with. But th- there's, there's a lot more to it. Studies are being done quite consistently proving there, there's something pretty cool happening to our brains and body when we are in meditation. Yes. Tell us. Okay. Right. So, uh, <laughs> right. So what we do is we study healthy people before and after going through a stress reduction program that is based on mindfulness meditation. And um, uh, we ask about their stress. We also ask about their well-being. And then we look in their brains and we see how the brain changes and then how those changes in the brain correspond to these changes in stress and well-being. And so uh, we found a number of changes in the brain. Um, The ones that are perhaps most interesting for this particular conversation is we found a decrease in the amygdala. And the decrease in the amygdala was correlated with a decrease in stress. Um, And this is really interesting because the amygdala is the fight or flight part of the brain, right? And this is a part of the brain that's well known that, um, you know, when you're stressed out, it's well known to turn on and sort of uh, mobilize all the stress hormones and, um, you know, really give you that stress response. And what we found is that it actually got less dense, less gray matter in that region after meditation. Um, And again, and it was correlated with the change in stress, suggesting that that the people aren't just saying that they feel better, that they feel less stressed. There's actually a neurobiological reason why they're feeling less stress. And this is really important because when we go through our day-to-day lives, we process our decision-making abilities, executive functionings, manage our emotions or not from the prefrontal cortex, from the area that's just above the the eyes, right? The left eye in particular. And when we are in stress... It, that that it, it were hijacked i think it, uh... exactly right well it's a little it's it's clear that the frontal cortex and the amygdala seem to be um often they are in opposite directions and i think it can be that the stress um hijacks the front or just that the front sort of abandons and then you know the middle just takes over um and so i think you can go either way um you know just if, if you just can't get a handle on it but then if you can get a handle on the stress from the, with the front with executive functions you can sort of turn down the amygdala so it's sort of a two-way a two-way thing and let's talk a little bit about what we mean by meditation what we mean by mindfulness because many mm-hmm. people out there think of um the beatles uh-huh. Uh, Rob Das, hippies, mala beads, patchouli oil, incense, yep. and uh, love-ins. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it's come a long way, baby. <laughs> yes, it has. And so let's talk about what a contemporary meditation looks like in the digital age. Right. So none of the above. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. There is still elements of that. Um, I think it's also important to note that there's a lot of different 
types of meditation. You know, in India, there's many, many different schools of, of meditation. And in the East, there's many different schools of meditation. And back in the 60s, you know, the Beatles and Ram Das, that was more of um, Hindu meditation um, versus what's mindfulness derives from the Buddhist lineage. And so there's a lot of overlap, but there's also a lot of differences. And so I think that's one of the differences between now and then. Um, the Hindu traditions tend to have a lot of chanting and a lot of, um, you know, worshiping deities and whatnot versus in Buddhism, um, there's no chanting, you know, it's just silent and, you know, there isn't, I mean, there is the Buddha, but there aren't, you know, the, the pantheon of, of gods and goddesses like you have in Hinduism. So I think that's part of it. And there's just less emphasis on the, on, on, on the worship aspects of, of the practice in mindfulness, um, particularly as it's taught here in the West, um, in the, in the mindfulness tradition, and it's often referred to as insight or vipassana, um, you know, often there is a Buddha figure at the front of the room, but it's very optional, you know, whether or not you want to bow to it. Um, and it's much more focused on, I'd say, sort of the psychological and, um, um, you know, sort of the stress-reducing aspects of meditation as opposed to the worship aspects. And definitely, I think people who get more into it, they some of that elements are there, but they're just not as emphasized as much. What I personally enjoy about meditation is that it is a spirit, for me, it is a spiritual practice um, separate from religion. It allows me, and I think probably you would concur, as, as do many who do meditate, it allows me to just become more grounded, more centered, more relaxed, more connected in my own body um, and in the world around me. It, it has sort of a dual purpose. Exactly. Yes. And that's what I really like about it is that you can do it either way because there definitely there are a lot of people who who do get into the more religious aspects of it, um, but others who don't, who just use it for the stress reduction uh, aspects and the, you know, the grounding. And um, it, for me, I think it's all good. Um, and it's, um, you know, there's no one right way to do it. I, oh, oh, I like what you just said. There's no one right way to do it because there are so many how-tos out there and to get people to empty their mind, clear their mind, stop thinking about thinking, um, uh, become at one with their breath, become at one with their heartbeat. There are a lot of ways, a lot of pathways to reaching that meditative space. Yes, exactly. And I think, so the key with mindfulness is um, sort of the non-judging and the present moment awareness. I guess, and that's what's different from the chanting, because in the chanting, you know, traditions, you get into the chant and it's, it's, it's like a, um, uh, you know, you're, you get very much into like a hypnotic state almost, right? And you get sort of lost in the chant versus in the mindfulness, you're really in the present moment. And the nice thing about it is that you can do it anytime, anywhere, under any condition, you can be present, you know, present to the present moment and whatever's going on. So even if you are driving or if you are in the middle of a conversation or you know, even a heated conversation, you can still have mindfulness. You don't have to go off somewhere and chant and have peace and quiet somewhere that you can be mindful anytime, anywhere, under any condition. And this is a fantastic diffusion technique for anxiety, for depression, yes. for mm -hmm. basically self-regulation and self-mastery. And I think that is... Um, the huge power of this when we work with clients who just can't seem to relax. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just a great way to, because the idea is that when you are anxious, 
invariably, if you really stop and look at it, what you're worrying about is something in the future which may or may not happen, right? And you know, anxiety is almost always about the future. Depression is always about, almost always about the past, right? And oh my God, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, and oh, this happened. And whereas in the present moment, you know, unless something really horrible is happening to you at the present moment, probably the present moment's okay, right? You know, you, and so that's, and so if you can always be in the present moment, you know, then, you know, you let go of all the worry and let go of all the depression and you're just there in the present moment. You know, you, what you say is so important and spot on that 99.9 tenths percent of the time, the present moment is safe, decent, okay, and probably pretty comfortable. Yes, exactly. 99.9% of the time, y'all. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the really interesting thing about this. And if we can train our brains, which the, um, the, the scientific evidence is, is there, that we can train our brains to learn this technique, that we can teach these old dogs new tricks. Exactly, yes. In fact, there's n- numerous stories of people who started meditating in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and you know, were able to attain you know, very advanced states of meditation. So definitely, it's never too late to start. N- never. And it's never too early to start either. I mean, we can train right. our children from a very young age, although it's uh, on a very limited basis, maybe only a minute or two right. when they're very young, to sit in the present moment. Yes. Exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to go to a break in a minute, and when we come back, I would love to talk about the anti-aging effects of meditation because this is really very interesting to me. The, the, the doctor that taught me to meditate many moons ago always espoused this, and he could never do it from research, although he was a scientist, um, but mm-hmm. I think that you've got the, the, uh, the magic answers here. We are going to go to that break, and when we come back, we will learn more about what goes on in our brains and bodies when we are in a state of mindful awareness. To learn more about Dr. Sarah Lazar, please visit her Facebook page, Lazar Lab for Meditation Research. You can also find out more about her on the harvard.edu website. And here come those tunes. like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. 
Have a grateful day. Wow. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download this podcast and share it because sharing is caring. Plus, we're talking about something really important today. We're talking about mindfulness and meditation and how one could uh, adapt or adopt this practice in daily life to reduce stress, to become more balanced, more grounded, and more centered. And we're talking today with Dr. Sarah W. Lazar. She's an associate researcher in psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital, as well as an assistant professor in psychology at Harvard Medical School. She is a contributing author to Meditation and Psychotherapy and Sarah, we, we, we're going to begin our conversation this segment about the effects, the anti-aging effects of meditation, that how it can reverse the aging process and contribute not only to our inner well-being, but I dare say that outer glow. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, there's been quite a few studies now uh, that have shown various different um, uh, in different domains, the anti-aging aging effects of meditation. Um, we and a couple other people have shown it in the brain, but there's also some evidence uh, of it in the body as well. Um, talk about that for a minute, because I, when I was trained to meditate, which was many, many moons ago, I was trained by an MIT scientist who told me, for example, these were some of the statistics that uh, – uh, 20 minutes of meditation was actually more beneficial than an hour of sleep. So if, if it was about getting one more hour of sleep or getting up in the morning to meditate, that the long-term effects in, uh, for stress reduction, anti-aging, memory were better in those 20 minutes of meditation. Is that true? Well, I don't know about if that particular claim is true because that particular study hasn't been done. But what we do know is that people who meditate versus people who don't meditate seem to have these anti-aging effects, but we have not, I don't, I, we can't exactly say what exactly that claim. Yes. You know, so I, I don't know about meditation versus sleep, but I do know if meditation somewhere in the day definitely does help. Um, and so what we have shown and what some other people have shown is um, it's well known that as we get older, our brains start to shrink a little bit. And that as it shrinks, that's part of the way why um, it gets a little harder to figure things out and we're, we slow down a little bit. And what we've shown is that the brains tend to not shrink as much in the long-term meditators compared to controls. And also that um, cognitive function seems to be maintained. And that is really amazing. And I do notice um, when I do meditate regularly every day that I tend to be crisper, spot on, my short-term memory is better. And when I don't meditate every day, and I will go through some periods where I don't, that I may not be as crisp or on point and have a little bit more brain fog. Yes, <laughs> I agree. Because <laughs> again, I go to <laughs> or practice less. So yeah, no, it, it's very, it's, you know, for people who practice, um, it's very clear. And I, I, there's a lot of good analogy, that I think, with um, exercise. You know, people who regularly exercise will tell you that if they go through a period where they don't, or if they skip a few days where they don't exercise, that their body just feels more sluggish and they can just tell that they haven't exercised that day. And similarly with meditation, it's just you feel different on the days you meditate versus the days you don't meditate. And I would say mood management is definitely improved um, with meditation. 
Yes, definitely. Um, that's uh, referred to as the pause that a lot of people talk about that, you know, when something stressful happens, when people start yelling and screaming or there's something happening that you're able to just spontaneously, instead of just reacting, you pause. And during that pause, often a more adaptive answer arises. <laughs> and it's sort of hard to explain unless you've experienced it. But it's... um you know, just having that little extra breath, that extra space to, to, you know, to respond calmly as opposed to reacting uh, in a not so great way. Um, and just also things just don't bother you so much anymore. It's just, it's really amazing how it works. Um, yeah, we're both here to say from yes. different angles. I mean, both as you as a, a researcher and practitioner and myself as a practitioner and, and teacher to a degree in my practice. I'm not a meditation teacher, but I do teach it to clients in the context of when they're going through these trials and tribulations of life or they're recovering from trauma or even addiction recovery because I do a significant amount of that mm. in my work. You know, yeah. how do we give our clients these tools to gain equanimity, which brings me to the next subject of yes. um, happiness versus equanimity. I mean, we are not offering, you know, happiness in a bottle through meditation. That's not right. what this is. Exactly. Correct. And I think that's a very important idea to get out there that a lot of people think, oh, you start meditating and just overnight you become happier. And it's it's not that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, no. it's a process and it's a, it's a little bit different. And the, the process of equanimity or creating more balance in one's life is what meditation is designed to do. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, I think balance is a good word. And the idea... What one of my teachers described it as is uh, seeing a lump of gold and a lump of coal as equal <laughs> and sort of not getting as attached to the good things and not being as reactive to the bad things in life. And uh, it's not to say you can't enjoy the good things in life, but that you're not always just wanting them, wanting them, wanting them. When they're there, they're great. But when they're not there, it's okay too. Which the word that pops into my mind is savoring. And I think that that is what meditation teaches us. Yeah, that's an aspect of it, definitely. I think that's definitely a good word for it. Um, but again, but savoring without wanting it to continue, right? And I think that's the, the hard part is like, you know, you're eating something and you want to keep eating and you want to keep, you know, that delicious taste rather than just saying, ah, that was really great. It's done. Move on to the next thing. And uh, the next thing will always come, whether it's yeah. we're in a, whether we're in a joyful moment where we're you know giddy with delight and happy, or we are in the dark nights of the soul and in in the suffering. Both conditions are temporary. Exactly, exactly. And again, when you really get into the present moment, often they're not as bad as you think they are. Um, and it's really well uh, established with pain uh, in, in the neuroscience of pain in that there, there's two different systems in the brain. One is the sensory perception and then one is the suffering and they're different networks and they're independent. And so you can have two people who have the exact same painful stimulus, but the suffering will be completely different in the two people based on history and, you know, how they deal with things. And so even though, two, and, that's, and you see this all the time, that two people can be in the exact same condition and one person's moaning and groaning and the other person is okay. And that's a lot of what meditation is about, is trying to separate those two and trying to just say, okay, this is what the conditions are right now. Can I be okay with it regardless of how it is? And I don't need to, you know, because moaning and groaning doesn't get you anywhere. 
No, it just makes it worse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it really yeah. does. But but you say something very important about the suffering, and we're talking about the physical suffering, the physical discomfort and pain. There are some people that absolutely have zero tolerance for pain. The minute they have an, an, an owie, they want a medicine. And, right. And th- why this approach uh, falls short is when the brain and the body get used to receiving that medicine, doesn't it want more? Exactly. And it just can't get used to dealing with the pain. Exactly. And then, and you're always dependent on the drugs then. Yeah. And so, um, and often because of the pain, again, if you approach it mindfully, there's numerous, anyone who's meditated, you know, their leg falls asleep at some point and they're, you know, it starts to get the pins and needles and, you know, there's, it's painful sometimes sitting. Um, And you learn to approach pain in a very different way and deal with pain in a very different way. And it's a good, I think, analogy for emotional pain in life as well, that often when you really just sit with it mindfully, it starts to break up and you start to notice, you know, rather than the, you know, just what it actually feels like. And it actually gets really interesting. And often the, oh my goodness, oh, I don't like this goes away and you get really interested in it and excited about it kind of sort of in a strange way. And uh, you just, you, you interact with it in a completely different way. Well, the getting interested in it or the melting away of the discomfort um, actually interests me because it's like the more mm-hmm. curious we get or the more we're able to witness what's going on rather than be attached to the experience takes us out of the discomfort and takes us in that observer's place exactly. where it just becomes interesting and it's part of the life adventure. Exactly, exactly. And so if you can just stay in the moment, stay curious, and be at peace with whatever it is. Um, Another one of my teachers has a wonderful saying, which I love, which is, um, you're not trying to quiet the storm, you're trying to find the quiet within the storm. And again, I think that's, you know, for when there's emotional upheaval going on, it's like, you know, everyone around you can be yelling and screaming and running around and all, and you just sit there quietly and just observe. And similarly, when your mind is, you know, and all the voices in your mind are yelling and screaming and unhappy, can you find that place that's just observing all of it and be okay and just hang out in that place that's observing all of the chaos in your mind or all the chaos in your body and just be okay with it and just watch it? How is mindfulness changing the face of modern Western medicine? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, certainly a lot of doctors are now understanding that stress is treatable, you know, and that meditation is a fantastic way to treat stress. And I think they know that stress is a component of most diseases. So I think it's slowly starting to get more fully integrated into it. Um, certainly the National Institute of Health, which is the primary research uh, foundation and funder of research in America, um, you know, they just changed their name from the Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine to the Center for Integrative, uh, Complementary and Integrative Health um, with this idea that meditation and mindfulness and other things as well, like acupuncture and other mind-body modalities and other, uh, you know, these techniques, you know, it's really about promoting wellness and health um, and that that's an important component of, of, of overall health. You know, that's not just treating sickness, it's also promoting wellness. And when we talk about wellness, it's not only ab- the absence of dis-ease, but it's the added benefit of having good, connected, satisfying relationships, feeling good about the work that we get to do in our lives or we're choosing to do in our lives, the way um, we are in the world. I, that is a part of wellness as well. Exactly. Exactly. And it's... Well, mm-hmm. 
Yes. No, I, 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 I'm delighted to hear that. I didn't know that about um, the NIH. Let, we're almost out of time, and I want to give our listeners one quick jump start to uh, beginning a meditation practice. One does not need to buy a course. One does not need to read a book even. It's as simple as fill in the blank. Sarah, what would be the one tip? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the sorry. Fill, the, the fill, no, the fill in the blank. <laughs> okay. It's as simple as just sitting down and watching your breath, you know, and staying in the present moment and doing it without judging. Beautiful. So go off into your day, y'all, and uh, just follow your breath and see where the adventure takes you. Thank you, Dr. Sarah Lazar. To learn more, please visit um, it's NMR dot mgh dot harvard dot edu slash lazar and on facebook the lazar lab for meditation research we are out of time as we said and here are a few thoughts before we part happiness is not a destination it cannot be bought sold or traded happiness will never invite you to the party it simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion purpose place and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Sarah Lazar and David Gellis, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And here's a great big shout out of thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week. We appreciate you. Go out and make it a great and mindful day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week... Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the TogiNet Radio Network.